podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Want to work in your swing in comfort or watch from the stands in something sharp? Charles Tirrett has a collection of smart, casual menswear, perfect for cricketers, professional and novice alike. All now with an extra 10% off sale with the code WISDOM10. If it's good enough for Joss Butler, it's good enough for us. We'll leave a discount code in the description below. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. On today's show, we'll be previewing the SCG Ashes Test. We'll talk about the ongoing test series that are happening in South Africa and New Zealand, as well as a flurry of high-profile retirements, most notably Quinton de Cox from the Test Arena. I'm Yaz Rana, and with me over Zoom is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, and the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. In addition to what I mentioned in the intro, we've also got a um, a snippet of a fascinating interview that Joe did recently with the Parkinson twins, Matt and Callum. We'll be playing that later on in the show. Let's start with the latest Ashes chat. Um, and depressingly, we've got to start with more COVID news, I'm afraid. Uh, Travis Head has tested positive for COVID, so we'll miss the fourth test. Australia have called up Mitch Marsh, Nick Madison and Josh English to the squad as cover. Um, but Ben, you'd expect Usman Kwaja to slot in straight away for Travis Head, wouldn't you? Um, there wasn't much between the pair going into the series. So should be a straight swap there? Uh, I think so. The only other possible thing they could do, there's been talk of trying to give uh, Mitchell Swepson a game before uh, Australia a couple tours subcontinent and he's likely to play a part there. But if they can, if, you know, if they can use the Lati tests of an Ashes series to blood some players, uh, kind of shows where England are. Uh, but if they were to do that, then they might want to bring in Mitch Marsh uh, to give them an extra seam bowler as well. So that's the other way they possibly could go. But yeah, I'd expect... Kawaja to come in I think uh, and it'll be interesting to see how he goes as well because he's been in brilliant shield form um, it was very close uh, and I think that that's what England would least want Australia to do with him having scored Ashes runs before mm. and an excellent record in Australia as well Chris Silverwood has also tested positive which brings the number of positive cases in the England camp to nine um, Joe it's, it's kind of remarkable that none of the playing group have We've had it yet. Um, England had a training session the other day that was abruptly halted after a net bowler received a positive test mid-session, I think. Um, Dan Milan afterwards said it, it was a bit of a shambles and the coaching staff is pretty skeletal at the moment. Um, and Adam Hollyoak, who coached in Australia, was supposed to join the squad but was then deemed a close COVID contact. Uh, you had BBL games cancelled. The CA chief, Nick Hockley, has also tested positive. It's kind of mad that at this time of recording... Um, at, 2.23 on a Monday, it's still going on despite the amount of COVID that's obviously around the two squads. Yeah, it's amazing it's still going, particularly when we think what cricket's been cancelled in the past, England leaving South Africa um, and obviously India leaving the tour of England early. Um, you know, I guess in a way we should be celebrating the fact that the, the cricket continues and, and people are doing a fantastic job as best as they can in very difficult circumstances to keep the show on the road. From a kind of English perspective, it just feels like another kind of grim aspect to a pretty grim tour, really. Um, I think there wouldn't be, there'd be some England fans who wouldn't be particularly bothered if the tour was called off at this point. Um, dare I say, there might even be a couple of players who, who might feel the same. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's good, certainly for Cricket Australia. They, they need these matches desperately. They're a huge part of their 
their kind of budget for the year. Um, it would be a disaster for them if, if they lost a, a test match or two. So fingers crossed, um, they do manage to, to just about keep going as they are. But yeah, as you said, it's, it's, it's really quite astonishing that England haven't had a single player go down with yet, particularly now that we know Chris Silverwood has, has tested positive him, himself. Um, and we'll just see what, what team ends up on, on the park. 3-0 three, three uh, w- would be England's, what, second best result in Australia in the last 20 years. So that would be something to cling to for, for Joe Root, etc. Uh, not, not, not that we're hoping that happens. But, uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to think. Well, I guess, what is the difference between this and the Staff Africa Tour last year? I guess vaccination status is the main thing. And also the actual variant itself is less mild. So, so, so you hear, more, sorry, more mild, yes, less severe, yes. Uh, it, but it does, it's, there's something about, I mean, as much as, you know, it's good the cricket's going on, it, it, it's, I think, and I know the Pakistan tour was cancelled for a different reason, but it does just feel like that was cancelled so hastily. And the, the, the will of the ECB to keep things going uh, is just different when different countries involved. And I don't think that that is controversial to say at this point. The other thing I can't work out is what it would take for the tour to be cancelled. Is it as soon as there's one positive within the, within the playing group, does it matter who that is? Or is it literally if there are 11 professional English cricketers in Australia, then the Ashes will go ahead and it doesn't really matter who those 11 are. Joe, on, on last week's show, um, after the MCG test, we talked a lot about like structural reasons of why England are producing as many um, high-quality test players as Australia are at the moment. But... Another big part of the series has been England have underperformed to what you'd expect them to, particularly the bat. And Alistair Cook's been quite interesting on this. He's talked about the effect of being in bubbles for so long. And England have been in so many more bubbles than Australia have over the last year and the cumulative effect of of all that. Um, And given that tours have been cancelled in the past and test matches have been cancelled in the past for not just positive cases, but anxiety around that and, and how long England have been in those bubbles... I'm kind of surprised that they have, England haven't been more vocal about how difficult it has been for them, this tour. Yeah, I mean, Stuart Broad, in his column for the Daily Mail, did say that and said he wasn't making excuses, but uh, England have spent a lot more time in, in bubbles than, than other countries over the last 18 months, two years. And that is certainly true. And in amongst all the rubbishness that we've seen, uh, we do need to keep that in mind. I mean, the, the batting travails and the structural problems had all begun well before covid but taking this tour in isolation, I think it, you'd have to be... It's, it's obviously had an impact. There's no, there's no denying it's, it's had an impact on, on the players. And when things start to fall apart, as they have done, it must have even more of an impact. If you're winning, then perhaps these things kind of wash over you and aren't such a big problem. Um, but when things are going bad and it just feels like everything is falling to pieces, then it is having a huge impact. I think England have been so bad in this series, though, that they almost can't address that. I mean, as I said, broad touched on it in his column but if they'd put up more of a fight I think they'd have a bit more of a leg to stand on and, and it would be seen as too pathetic I think there would be so much kind of mirth coming their way if, if, if they were kind of whinging too much or or dare we say it wanting to go home um, so I think they're kind of boxed in slightly they've just got to kind of crack on and try and come out with some shred of pride after a miserable month. There have been a few interesting interviews in the past few days. Broad, Allison, and Butler with, with varying degrees of conviction have said they don't have immediate plans on calling it quits in Test cricket. Uh, but I guess that's not hugely surprising. They're unlikely to say that much mid-series. Um, Broad is probably the most interesting one, I think. He's talked about how frustrating it's been not playing on the two of the most helpful surfaces uh, a, a bowler like him is likely to come across this series and how he's not had much of a, 
a chance to influence the series. And at 35, Olin Robertson seemingly ahead of him in the pecking order. He's in, he's in quite an interesting position. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, because Broad, I guess, has been sort of on this slight downward path, really, for, what, three years? Maybe maybe a bit longer uh, with that sort of that upward tick in 2020. I remember, was it after the first test or during the first test in the West Indies in 2019 that Joe, I think, you wrote a piece for the site about how Broad was no, like quietly no longer first choice for England. And now I think he's definitively no longer first choice and that that third test was a must-win game. Uh, there were no sort of... And, and for a must-win game, you just pick your best attack. You're not trying to sort of manage bowlers or anything like that. And they picked Ollie Robinson ahead of him. And it's, you know, Ollie Robinson as well, as much as there are some slight sort of things about Pitt's concerns about how... You know, can England bowl him into the ground? He does seem like uh, he has played pretty much every game that he's been available for. And uh, and that might well continue. And he is a similar bowler to Broad. So I guess with Broad, it is, it is a question of desire because I don't think that England are yet at the stage where they'll be looking to sort of pension him off. I think if he is willing and happy to just be a kind of support bowler to get a game here and there when, you know, someone needs a rest or someone's injured then England will be quite happy to have him do that because he's still a very good test bowler, even if he is, there has been a slight decline and Ollie Robinson has sort of come in. Uh, but I guess it'll be interesting to see how willing he is to do that because I think he's spoken before the Instagram Live with Anderson saying that um, he didn't think he would go on as long as Anderson has gone on. Uh, and that was, what, a year and a half ago now. And so broad then, broad, broad now would be, what, like a year, a year and a half younger than they were during that chat. So it's actually getting to the point where if he were to, you know, so, um, uh, so yeah, that is interesting that Broad has said that he wants to carry on. Um, and I guess, I guess we'll see how he feels after two more defeats, whether he plays a part in them or not. Yeah, I, you can sort of read between the lines of these things. I, I didn't necessarily read it as he wants to carry on because part he said he didn't, he was never one to make emotional decisions, so he wasn't going to make an emotional decision. To me, that almost implied that if he was to make an instinctive decision now, it would be to, to call it a day, that, but actually he's going to kind of take time to reflect on it. The other thing, I mean, Stuart Broad has had such a wonderful career. Does he really want to leave it at the end of this Ashes series? Or does he want to keep playing, even if it is a bit part, as Ben says, in a home summer and get his send-off at the Oval or, or wherever it might be? And I mean, Rick Sport doesn't leave a hell of a lot of room for sentimentality, but I think in certain instances, it, it's nice if it can do. And I think it's not like Broad would just be making up the numbers next summer. He'd still be a, a really effective bowler on, on English wickets. Um, so I, I suspect he will probably play on in some capacity next summer and, and, and at least play a, a handful of tests. The, the, the kind of slight added complication with Broad is that he is obviously going to go on to have a career with, uh, I imagine, Sky Sports. He's already done a bit there and, and settled in quite nicely. He's obviously going to be very good at that role. Um, there are opportunities opening up there. Michael Holdings retired. Um, David Lloyd is obviously just uh, retired or been retired. Um, so there is that opening there in, in the in the skybox, and maybe could that potentially be too much to resist if, if he gets like a full time job offer, which might might possibly be on the table. This is all just speculation. I haven't haven't heard anything, but that might possibly force his hand. But but I suspect he'll probably want to see out the home summer and and have the the send off he deserves. Yeah, I, I guess to what Ben you said earlier, the decline hasn't been that. I'd argue there hasn't really been a decline. He, he was very, very good in the 2019 Ashes. He was very, very good in the 2020 home summer. And he's played six or seven tests since where he's not been quite as good. Like, 
I feel whenever anyone above the age of 32 has five or six tests where they haven't been quite as good as they have been in the past, it's easy to come to the conclusion that there is a irreversible decline there. But I don't think we've seen enough to suggest that has happened with Broad. Yeah, I'm not saying exactly that he is he's a shadow of the bowler he once was. These are things of fine margins. And I guess it's, it's as much to do with that, like, that minor downward tick as it is to do with Dolly Robinson's emergence, I think, because they are quite similar bowlers who fulfil quite similar roles. And one of them is a bowler who could build their attack around for the next 10 years. And another of them is coming to the end at some point. Um, and, is all, and also, I think Robinson is at this moment in time a slightly better bowler than Stuart Broad, which is not, it's not a, it's not a massive thing, but you know, when it comes to a judgment call between the two of them, England have shown that they prefer Robinson. And I don't see that changing unless there is an injury or a loss of form or something. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's that. Uh, but I think with, it was interesting you mentioned Butler as well, because I think that there's a weird amount of chat about Butler for, uh, so there's, I guess there's, you've got to separate quite a few things. So there's people questioning his uh, desire, which we we'll get into a second, but people just questioning his place in the team just based on merit. I think he is one of England. I mean, it doesn't, it's not a huge bar to, to cross, but he's one of England's most more reliable batters in the top sort of three or four, uh, going back to when he made his uh, return to the side. He's also a pretty good wicketkeeper. I mean, he does have his blemishes and he might not be the keeper that Ben Folks is, but Folks is built into this sort of myth by supporters on Twitter of this guy who's going to just be able to replicate his county average exactly in the test arena and never fumbles a chance, uh, which I don't think is, is, is hugely fair on him or on Butler. Um, and then on his desire for the game, uh, for test cricket. Oh, the other thing with Butler in his play style is obviously when he's such a brilliant um, wide ball player is that you, if, if, if he's just quite a good test player, that's not enough for some people. They say like, they see Josh Butler, he's not as good in test cricket as he's in wide ball cricket. Therefore, let's get someone in who's better. But I just don't think there is someone who is better at this moment. Um, like I saw one tweet saying like, Josh Butler was picked to score, you know, 100 ball, 150 for number seven. And he's not doing that. It's like, well... <laughs> <laughs> who is doing like that? It's quite a, it's quite a tricky thing to do. Like someone who is contributing, you know, semi-regular 30s, like earns their place in the side for England at the moment. Uh, and then on his desire, I think there's a couple of things that work against him. Firstly, I think he has a tendency just to quite, kind of look quite sad. So when he drops a catch and the cameras then zoom in on him, people are like, oh God, what is going through Butler's head? He must feel absolutely awful. When he does just have quite doleful eyes. And I think that does play a little bit of a part. There was like a clip that was going around Twitter of the cameras doing quite a slow zoom in on him. Everyone was like, they, they put in the, the hello darkness, my old friend over the top of it sort of thing. Uh, but I think that is a bit just how he looks. And then also, I think it's probably fair to say that he doesn't like, uh, when he talks about test cricket, uh, he doesn't love it with the same enthusiasm as some other players do. And he might well see T20 cricket and test cricket as slightly more equitable in terms of career goals and that sort of thing. But again, that's not like a, that doesn't mean he's going to pack it in instantly just because people have a slightly different view of the priorities as he does. Like, that doesn't mean he doesn't want to play test cricket at all. It just means that for him, it is not the be-all and end-all. And I think that's kind of fine if he, like, is happy enough doing one, happy enough doing another. I can see how that feeds into the sort of, like, will he then consider if it is, you know, worth the hassle. But I think he does think it's worth the hassle. He doesn't think it's worth the hassle because it's the only thing that matters to him. I think he thinks it's worth, it's worth the hassle because on the balance of all the things, like, it's, it's still quite a nice thing playing a test match for England. Joe, Phil interviewed Gary Kirsten after the test. I thought it was a really, really interesting interview. Um, it's up on wisdom.com at the moment. I think, am I right saying a longer version will be appearing in the next Wisdom Cricket Monthly? 
Um, yeah, I'm not actually sure if it's a longer version, but certainly an adapted version alongside um, our, our Where Do England Go From Here uh, kind of feature. And obviously Kirsten might be, might be part of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to pick out a few lines from, from, from the piece. So he said that when I was at 100, I asked six or seven people what they thought the England test team's top six should be. And no one gave me the same answer. This is a real indication uh, to me of the fact that England don't understand what their top six is. That would be a massive cause for concern. Um, it just feels like ground dog day here. It's average mediocre cricket when he's talking about the county championship here. I think there needs to be more intensity to the first class format. You can't have so many games. You lower the intensity. You lower the standard. Every, make every innings a priority. Don't make it so you've got 28 innings a, a season. Make it tight. Make it 16. So every innings is a big one you need players thinking geez I don't have a lot of games here I've got to make this a big one and the other thing of course is that bowlers operate at 70% because they know they can get performances and wickets bowling at 70% so it's not good for them either Um, he talked about if I was looking at test match batting I'd be thinking is is it time to go for the type of technical player that is best suited to test match cricket I think one guy who's technically a really good player is James Vince who hits it in the right areas with a really good straight bat technique I'm not saying he's the only one but he's the most visible to me. Um, Joe, it was a very interesting interview from someone who's twice said, twice gone for the job before. Um, He broadly expressed interest in it, again, if it were to come up. Um, And he's he's really opening up and being very honest about his his views on English domestic cricket at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think he's talking a lot of sense there. There's not much that I disagree with, but it is quite a punchy way to put yourself forward for a job by absolutely kind of slamming the structure you would potentially be working with it. I know Kirsten's taken a, a bit of stick from uh, a couple of members of the press for, for kind of giving that interview in the first place, given that Silverwood's still in the job and that Silverwood had COVID at the time. Personally, I, I don't really have an issue with that. It's not, Kirsten didn't text Phil and say, I want to speak to you, I'm up for this job. Phil was interviewing about a range of subjects and that naturally came up as a bloke who'd twice gone for the job before and, and he spoke openly and honestly. Um, so I don't have an issue with that. I, I just wonder from Kirsten's point of view whether this is the smartest way of putting yourself uh, in a position to get the job. That being said, perhaps we've got to a point where we are ready for these harsh truths. And, and it, if someone says them, then they actually make themselves more appealing for the role of someone who's prepared to come in and shake things up, which Silverwood was never going to shake things up because he was part of the thing in the first place. He was, he was the bowling coach. He was, as Stokes described him a couple of days ago, he's a real player's coach. And, you know, I know he means that in an absolutely positive way, but I, I also think, that's quite revealing about how he sees them. There's a, there's a kind of a, a matiness with, you know, with Spoons, who's been part of the setup for a long time. I, I think it needs, particularly with this um, quite inexperienced group or likely to become more inexperienced if we see some of the old heads make way, I think they need a bit more strong, firm guidance. And I, I think Kirsten would be an excellent candidate to do that, as I thought he would when Silverwood got given the job a couple of years ago. There's mm. also, I don't know who else, I mean, Jason Gillespie would probably be another name that would perhaps come into the, the frame I think he would also be a really interesting um, potential target very different kind of character to, to Kirsten but I think they both would arrive with so much knowledge Kirsten's obviously got a much better CV in terms of working in international cricket um, but I think they would both bring so much more and something new to the setup which is which is desperately desperately needed at this point mm. yeah I think England's next head coach will need to be someone batting focused for me someone who couldn't because that that's that's where England's main issue is I also wonder with Gillespie because he because he's such a, a likable bloke and he talks really well at whether he gets a something slightly an easy ride like his, his record at Sussex is actually a bit more checkered than uh it's sometimes made out to be I think and it's not like he's been passed over for a couple of jobs as well which is 
I think, interesting. I think it's also the Stokes' comments I thought were interesting because there had been a few reports of sort of slight unrest within the English dressing room. I don't know if you saw when Chris Wokes at a presser last week, he was asked about whether he thought Joe Root should stay on as captain. And he said, yeah, I think Root's got a pretty good record as captain. We're really happy with him, so I'd like to see Root stay on. And was asked if Silver would just stay on as coach and said, to be, to be brutally honest with you, it's not really my job to talk about other people's futures. Um, so having answered two, two questions a bit differently. Um, so yeah, I, I saw people mention Graham Ford as well, the former Ireland Sri Lanka coach, who I think also has a record of improving young batters, which I think has to be the main thing. I guess the other thing I also wonder is if it's as important as who the next coach is, is also just how, what the general reaction is. Like there's got to be some sort of wholesale review, I guess, because there are so many solutions being put forward, whether that's like, and drastic things like from fewer counties to, you know, like kind of ripping up the schedule and all these sorts of things. And I, it's tricky to know how thorough you need to be in that process before you make changes when the situation is as dire as it is. So I, it's quite a tricky position to be in, I think. Another interesting interview this week was, was with Graham Thorpe, um, he, one of England's current coaches out there at the moment. And he gave a very honest interview about England's batting and particularly Rory Burns. He said, like any player, they get to a point and I said to him, you've played 30 test matches and you average 30. So we want you to be doing more to be better than that as a player. Uh, we've had discussions with him. Does he need a major overhaul of his technique or just to th- tinker with things? He needs to do the simple things better so he can calm things down with his movements and everything. We've been talking him through that. When players get a little bit of success, they then think my way is the right way and then there's a balance to it. You can see certain things. I said to him, the best bowlers in the world are going to analyse your technique and the right-hand column is going to tell you whether you're getting it right or not. Um, now we've seen he's a good fighting character so I know that but at the same time you need a technique and temperament at the highest level that, that's a very honest um, answer to give about someone who's in the current squad yeah and I guess I suppose the point he's already had these conversations with Rory Burns so it's not like he's coming out and slamming Burns to the press but um, won't have had those conversations previous and I think personally as, as a, speaking as a fan more than anything else I appreciate that honesty at this point one of my main frustrations over the last few weeks is this being kind of refusal to acknowledge when there's a problem and I think it's about time they did and it would actually benefit the players if they did rather than trying to pretend everything's all right all the time. Um, there was another line in that uh, Thorpe interview which kind of jumped out to me as well with uh, with some players as a wake-up call and can actually kick-start their careers because they've started training a very, very different way. They actually really start to train smart. They don't, don't waste time fluffing, hitting half volleys. Well, you know, that's good, I guess. But why weren't they training smart beforehand? I mean, that's coming from the assistant coach, um, one of the finest batting technicians. What, why were they not training like that beforehand? It, and I think he also says that, you know, he doesn't want to get in players' heads too much during a test series. And I completely understand that. But one potential positive of all the, among all the negatives of bubbles is that coaches have had a lot more time to spend with the players than they have done previously. And there is a lot more time outside match time to work with players. So, whilst bubbles have had a hugely detrimental effect overall, this would seem one area where actually coaches have had the time to, to work outside of match days, outside of test series um, with some of these players. And it just, it just doesn't seem to have, have happened. He's not the only coach to, or somebody who's worked with England recently to say that uh, Paul Farbrace to, to Crick Buzz said something kind of similar. And Mark Ramakash today writing The Guardian said that when he was England's batting coach, uh, when they went to Sri Lanka in 2018, England were successful with batting quite aggressively. They then went to West Indies um, a few months later, 
tried to bat in a similar way and it just didn't work at all. And Rambakash basically said that he had reservations about that approach before that had happened. Yeah, England still went and batted like the, like they did. Um, and it, I, I guess people will wonder, Joe, uh, <laughs> these guys are coaches there and they didn't, they, they had these ideas and they weren't able to implement them. And it's quite a few. Yeah, they've got every right to wonder that. And I think you have to wonder if some of this is with the benefit of hindsight, if you've been part of that group and you're now saying it, were you saying those messages before? Were you getting them clearly through? In defence of Ramprakash, he gave an interview to uh, WCM, I think it was about two years ago to John Stern, uh, which he talked about his frustrations during his time as batting coach. And he thought players just didn't really have the almost kind of mental fortitude to, to get through the hard yards, to do the hard work, to stick around and would just want to go out and play their shots. And he expressed his frustration about that during his time as coach. I think it was two years ago. So he was making that point previously. Ramprakash isn't suddenly saying that now that England are doing badly. And um, you could also say, well, if Ramprakash was a, was a really top coach, he would have got those ideas through and made a difference. And, you know, he'll have to hold his hands up and say that didn't really happen under his watch. But there does seem an uneasiness, an uneasy kind of balance there of players being quite stubborn, I think. And we, we've seen that. We All this talk about whether you take an off-stump um, guard, which is obviously annoyed a lot of the England players. When I spoke to Ollie Pope, it was a clear, that, clear that it annoyed him. And I think for a young player who's struggling, I think, I think they should be a bit more open-minded to these things, really. Not to everyone, not to us, really, if I'm being honest. Um, but, but when you've got players who have scored thousands of test runs saying these things, they, they're, they're saying them for a reason. They're saying them with some sense behind them. And there is, I've felt that for a while, that there's a kind of siege mentality among the England team that we do it our way. Well, fine, if you're going to win some test matches and score some runs, but the, the fact of the matter is they're not. So they really do need to start listening. And, and hopefully there is now a willingness to kind of um, welcome in some new ideas and, and be a bit more open-minded to the way they should go about things. And looking ahead to the SCG test, um, do you think England will make any changes? Uh, trying to think the team they picked for the last one now. Uh, <laughs> well, go. I guess... The, 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 you, you... Australia won by a lot. Yeah, no, I remember that now. Uh, you'd be tempted normally to give Hamid a break, I think. But given what Thorpe has said about Burns, I think that's unlikely. Um, I personally would... I mean, I think Bairstow has kind of been a sort of a a makeshift selection for a couple of sort of presence challenges for about a year now. That's what he was in India. That's what he was during the summer. And that's kind of what he was in this series as well. I think that was always a bit more in hope than an expectation. And now that these last two tests have to be seen as building towards the future, I, I, my personal choice would be to get Dan Lawrence back in, but I'd even rather see Pope in there. I think Dan Lawrence just with uh, giving someone uh, a couple of tests uh, just to, you know, maybe slightly less pressure, see if they can do something there. And then I guess the bowl is it's kind of just take your pick. They'll know more about who's sort of pulled up. I mean, I guess they didn't have much work to do in the last test, having what the, the lowest score to lose by an innings this century. So they should all be pretty fresh, if nothing else. I mean, there are those guys who are there at the BBL as well. They're not there for much longer. I think it's kind of the last chance to pick James Vince, at least, because uh, he'll be going off to the Caribbean. So if, if England did want to do that, They'd have to do it now, but I think that's quite unlikely because we haven't heard anything about it. Uh, but yeah, so if, if I were to make changes, I would bring in Lawrence for Bairstow and then see which of the bowlers have, uh, have, uh, have recovered. Joe, what do you reckon? They've kind of got nowhere to go, really. 
with the batting lineup because I think Burns is marginally more likely to score runs than Hamid, but to drop Burns and then bring him back the next test is just a bit mad, really. Uh, and similarly, I would have definitely picked Lawrence above Besto for several of the reasons that Ben's just outlined. But when you have brought Besto in and he's got 30, I mean, <laughs> 30 in the context of this series is a score. I don't think you can drop him one test later either. So, so it's... So, yeah, I mean, I would probably, ridiculously, given the, the hammering that they just got, stick with the same batters because because of the reasons I've just said, but it, it is a bit nonsensical. Um, as for the bowlers, I'd bring in, I think, Broad for Robinson, who I think could... He, he's bowled well in this series, and, and I think he's, his fitness just looks a little bit... Uh, not quite as, as high as the rest who've been in, around international cricket for a while, and I'm sure it will get there. But I think his, his pace is, is down quite a bit and noticeably over the course of a day. So I think I would bring Broad in. And particularly given Broad's kind of latest... Um, chat in the press I think it's another opportunity to say alright well over to you Stuart like, if, if you really deserve your place if you should have been picked show us that we were wrong um, and, and see how see how he reacts and um, I think Anderson would have to play and, and you've got to pick a spinner so that's Leach yeah Be- Besto is so so strange isn't it like I think this is a th- his third separate run in the side this year maybe even the fourth uh, and like, he has actually looked okay. I know it's all relative compared to the rest of the batters. I completely agree with you, all your points on Lawrence. But it has felt at various points that he's like a, a decent score has just been around the corner in a weird way. Like I thought he actually looked okay in, in the first innings at Melbourne. And there were times in the summer where he actually looked all right. I mean, he was out, what, strang- strangled down the leg side at Lords when it was pretty flat and he looked pretty good. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess the other thing is, almost a bit like Matt Parkinson, who we'll talk about later. Uh, I kind of wonder if there's something else going on there with Dan Lawrence, because for the outside, Lawrence has, has he's had a few scores of note this year uh, in a way that Bairstow and Pope haven't really. Bairstow and Pope have two fifties between them. Lawrence, in fewer test matches, has scored three, and he had a, a other good 46, I think, at, the, uh, at Medabad. So I wonder if there's something else there, or people in the England hierarchy seem to have made a decision on Lawrence that we're unaware of. It's interesting with Lawrence because I think there is now a lot of conversations and you hear it from Ricky Ponting and others saying that England's techniques are just wrong for Test cricket. And there is already concern that Lawrence's technique isn't isn't what you need for Test cricket, that he plays too much through the leg side and that he is vulnerable in ways that a Test batter shouldn't be. So if England are getting that criticism and like, here's our new guy that we brought in and it's Dan Lawrence and he's also going to play in a bit of a weird way, then you're kind of adding kind of fuel to the flames in some way. Yeah. All that being said, I think certainly in, in terms of what we got out there, he, he's, the, he's the best we've got and he's absolutely worth looking at. Um, I think we've run our race with, with Johnny Bairstow as a, as a test cricketer. The only other thing is potentially plucking an opener out of some, someone who's not actually in the squad at the moment. Sam Robson is in Australia uh, he was one of the highest run scorers in the county championship last year. Uh, I don't think if Sam Robson had those seven test matches that he had in 2014 and 2021, he'd have been dropped so hastily. Um, I know that sounds like quite an extreme option. I'm not sure if he's still there, but if he is, I would really be tempted because uh, given what Thorpe has said about Burns, Hamid averages about 10 this series, Crawley averages 10 over a whole year. First, from a pragmatic point of view of who's going to score more runs, I'm not sure it's going to be Hamid and Crawley. But two, also what the long-term damage could be of giving Hamid all five here or giving Crawley the next two. If he's re- I'm not completely discounting the possibility of those, sco- those two scoring runs, but if the England hierarchy are 
aren't massively confident in them two scoring runs, I don't think that would be that bad an option. I don't know how that would work with COVID bubbles and all that, but I wonder if that's been considered at the very least. I thought Sam Robson got treated really harshly. He was basically a victim of England's scheduling that was such a, a, a long gap between England's test series, an oddly one, long one, that by the time it came round, that um, Lyde had had a brilliant county season and the energy was very much for Adam Lyde. And then Trot kind of got oddly got picked as, a, as an opener, didn't he, in the, in the Caribbean briefly. Mm. And by then, by the, all the time that had happened, Robinson was kind of forgotten about. And when he went back to county cricket, he didn't kind of pile on the runs at all for a couple of years. But yeah, if you look at a long period of time, then Robson is is right up there with the most kind of credible candidates as an opening batter and and did okay without setting the world alight. But I absolutely agree. Yes, if if he had his t- if it had his time that he had then now, we'd all be thinking, wow, this is really quite a successful start to a Test career rather than dropping the bloke. And he was he was also only like twenty four at the time as well. It was he was uh, basically Sibley's age when Sibley got well, when Sibley first got picked. He was basically that that young. He's uh, I think he was the same age as like Hamid is now as well. So he was quite young when he got the opportunity. Um, and Ben quickly just on Australia, um, how how do they pick a, a bowling attack for this Test match? Uh, do, do you drop Scotty Boland? Um, well, I guess they probably well. I'd... It is tricky, but but it's not tricky from a point of view of uh, it's it's like they, it's tricky to predict. But I don't think it's in a way tricky for them to choose. Like they can kind of just go with whichever way they feel because they can say it's rest and rotation. They can say they want to give someone a bit more of a go uh, with the series having been won, or they can say they're trying to go for the jugular and pick their their best attack. You know, so I think they can kind of do what they what they like, and they can justify it pretty easily um, if they're going to. Yeah, I mean, because also you've got Richardson as well. So already they had a bit of a debate, even if it was just Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins and Richardson that were fit. And now you've got Boland as well. I think in terms of quality, despite his uh, his amazing start, I think Boland would be below those four. But maybe they do just sort of keep the story going and, and hope he sort of uh, wingles a few more out, basically. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a this is a proper problem of plenty that isn't really a problem, I think. Um, yeah, the, the one thing I would have said on England is just that Mark Wood will be an interesting one to see how England handle him because the SEG is supposed to be the flattest wicket in Australia and that tour of the West Indies all of a sudden looks quite a lot more important, I think, in that we know that England are quite a distance from the top three in the world. What we don't know yet is kind of how far they've fallen below and that West Indies tour has always been quite a difficult one for them. So actually, you know, as much as we chastise England for planning all the time, they really do need to to get something from that series uh, or else it really will be sort of all panic. He's saying wrap Mark Wood and Cotton Wool. Take the 5-0, wrap them in Cotton Wool for the, the tour of West Indies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it if Roots came out and said that at the toss. Um, moving to South Africa, India beat South Africa at Centurion in the opening test of a three-match World Test Championship series over there. Um, KL Rahul hit a brilliant 100 on the opening day. Uh, it was a relatively ro- low-scoring affair. South Africa were bowled out for less than 200 in both innings. India for 174 in their second. Um, India's quicks were brilliant. Chami um, took a first innings fifer. Bummer with two magic balls in the fourth innings. One that was basically a 90-mile-per-hour off-break to Van der Dussen that, that, he, that he left. And then um, another one was, was a Yorker, I think, to Maharaj. Um Charlie asks, what, what are India going to do when Rohit is back in the team? Surely Agarwal and Rahul stay and one of Rahane or Pajara go. Um, the first day of the second test match is going on at the moment. India bowled out for 202. 
a uh, couple of failures there for Rahane and Pajara again. Rahane did get some runs in the first test match. Um, Agawal got a 50, by the way. And um, Rahul looked really good again in the second test. So, yeah, Ben, what, what do you think India are going to do when Rohit comes back? Well, it's different between what I think they will do and what they think they should do. I think uh, Agawal, I don't think, is quite nailed down his spot. I would say that there are still uh, questions over that he hasn't quite answered the overseas question because he's got a brilliant record at home. Uh, but away, there are still, you know, still needs that big hundred away from home to properly show that you can do it in all conditions. But um, I would say that he looks more likely to score runs than Pajara or Rahane, especially. I mean, we've talked about Rahane quite a lot, but Pajara's form is almost as concerning. He averages like 27 and a half in the last three years without 100, which is bad. I mean, there's a few misgating things in that, you know, last winter in Australia, he didn't end up with a brilliant average, but did play a big role just by blunting the the ball for ages but even that there's only so much so far that can get you and it's his ability to do that has diminished a bit as well um and then you also just face the problem that india so firstly india have loads of brilliant batters out the side it's not just those uh it's not just rohit to come back they've also got sort of gill pushing quite hard for selection shreyas ira as well vihari wouldn't have played this test if cody hadn't got a back spasm all of those you think will be the guys that they're looking to build the lineup around at some point um and i think the thing they want to avoid is having to bring them all in at the same time, which is kind of, which could quite easily happen, I think, if, if India, because, you know, that, that batting lineup is more and more fallible and it's fallible in a way that could end up contributing to quite a, a shock test series defeat. And if that happens, you're then looking for kind of wholesale solutions and then you end up having to, you know, have a, a completely new look batting lineup all of a sudden rather than sort of uh, saying, okay, like, you are now our, you know, reserve batter or you are going to go back or go away and work. And if you think we're going to give this guy a run at number three or at number five um, and then doing it that way. So you are sort of transitioning rather than just like uh, uh, picking a whole new batting lineup, which is kind of what it seems like might have to happen at some point. So it's a long way to say, way of saying I would have Agarwal at, at mm, tricky when you, when you then have to work out who to actually drop. Uh, because also Kara Hall could possibly do a job in the middle order, but he is such a brilliant new ball batter. But I, I would I would look to play Agwell and leave out one of Pajara or Ahane. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, as you mentioned, Kohli's missing the second tester injury. Rahul is captaining India for the first time in test cricket. Um, from a South African point of view, Marco Janssen looks looks pretty decent. Um, he's a enormous left arm quick um, who bats a bit uh, and averages 17 with the ball after his first one and a half tests. Um, Duan Olafur is back um, after a few years out playing in England as a Colpac player. Um, he, he just he looks a completely different bowler. He's about 20 Ks um, an hour down on what he was. And it might partially be to do with his recent bout of COVID. But um, his record in England for three years wasn't great. Uh, he averaged over 30 in each of his three seasons in county cricket. Um and yeah, he he got picked up wickets on on day one, but I thought he looked a shadow of the bowler who kind of burst onto the scene. What was it three years ago now? But yeah, the big news though was this shock retirement from Test cricket of Quinton de Kock. He's just turned twenty nine. He was due to miss the next two Test matches for the birth of his first child anyway, but he's announced that he's gone for good. Um, couple of stats for you. By the time Adam Gilchrist was Quinton de Kock's age, Gilchrist had only played ten Test matches. Um, and de Kock is one of just two wicketkeepers, the other being Gilchrist, to average over 40 and strike over 70 with the gloves in Test cricket. Joe, what do you make of that news? 
Um, well, you say shocked. I wasn't very shocked. Really? Not really. Um, no, I mean, I remember uh, a South African journalist a while back saying that Cox one of those kind of one of those characters who is unbelievably talented at cricket, but doesn't necessarily love it all that much. Um, and he obviously quite likes it to have had a career in it, but it's not. He doesn't kind of live and breathe it. And, and you know, in, in lots of ways, I think that's a really healthy thing. And, and other cricketers suffer too much the other way from it being there everything but it, it does mean that when stuff gets a bit tough that when and you need to lose one of the formats potentially then test cricket is probably going to go for him because it it is the most demanding it requires the longest tours um he's obviously not seen eye to eye with cricket south africa over a few years as well so anything he can kind of do to perhaps put a bit of distance between him and them i, I can see that as well um, it's certainly, I say it's not a shot, it's really sad. I mean, it's terrible news for South Africa who, um, I was really heartened to see the, the kind of fast bowling stocks they've got now. This is a really good pace attack they've got against India and that's with Nokia still to come back in. Um, but their batting looks two, possibly even three short of a really kind of, the, the sort of South African batting line that we've become used to over the, over kind of 10, 20 years. And the got was, was their best, pla- is their best batter and their keeper. So that's, that's a huge hole to, to fill. Um, so that that is really bad news, and it's bad news for Test cricket. He's he's one of the most enjoyable um, batters to watch in, in Test cricket. Um, he's played some wonderful innings, all types of different innings, but you always know that he's going to come out and, and play a shot. So he's he's a huge loss in that sense. But yeah, as I, I, it's not one that took me hugely by surprise. Interesting. I mean, a lot lot of the reactions kind of been getting to existential questions about Test cricket. Is this, this is the beginning and the end? Um, you know, looking at the the. I mean, understandable reasons why a player like Decock would call it quits from Test cricket. It's not as financially rewarding playing for South Africa. You have short careers. It's completely fair enough for players to pursue um, money if they have such short careers. And he's so good at white ball cricket. He's, he's about to have a family. Why not? Why not prioritise the, the short form stuff? And he and he started young. He's already had a long career. I, I'd, I absolutely understand why those concerns come to the surface, and, and it is a constant existential question that we're all struggling with as, as fans of test cricket but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is really the kind of the precursor to a wave of these kind of retirements I do think it was quite an individual case uh, with the cop for, for the kind of reasons I've outlined I, I don't see a lot necessarily going to follow immediately I, I don't it's obviously something that needs to be kept an eye on and and it, even more so in countries like South Africa like Sri Lanka like Pakistan where they don't get paid as as much um are we going to get to a point where the ICC have to make sure those balls are rich so they can keep the best players playing test cricket? Well, that, that might well be a point we get to. I don't get the impression with the cog. It was just about money. Though. I think I think he had just had enough. So I don't, I don't think we need to, whilst we are sorry to see him go, I don't think we need to worry too much about the state of cricket based on this particular retirement. It's mm, a fair point. He had a pretty much eight-year-long test career, which is, you know, his test career was... Uh... I think actually about the same length as Andrew Strauss's. I might be wrong, but I think it was about the same in terms of actual length of time. Other retirement news, Ross Taylor has announced that he's calling it a day from international cricket at the end of this New Zealand international summer. Uh, He's the leading New Zealand run scorer in both test cricket and ODI cricket. Um, Ben, he's he's had an absolutely wonderful career, one that spanned uh, over one and a half decades. Yeah, uh, and... For a time, he was genuinely one of the best all-format batters in the world. I think from sort of the 2015 World Cup onwards, for about four years, he was 
averaging second only to Kohli in ODI cricket, as well as being a brilliant test batter in that time. Uh, he's, al- he's almost the, the, the batter that has helped New Zealand transition from being a team who were sort of plucky and happy to compete to a team who are one of the best sides in the world. He's done that in all formats, really. Uh, and he's done that even while having to contend with a few like pretty difficult things. So there was obviously yeah, the captaincy taken away from him in controversial circumstances in 2012. He was told either just, just before or d- during the first test in Sri Lanka that he would have the captaincy taken away from him. He, Martin Crowe wrote before he died that Taylor sort of called him up saying he was thinking about sort of quitting the game entirely when that was going on. And then the second test comes out and hits 140 and a 70 odd, which Crow described as the equal greatest performance in New Zealand's test history, which is quite something. And then obviously, and then a few years ago, he had, uh, he realised he just couldn't see the ball as well as he could before. And they found out that he had a, a growth in his left eye, I think, that um, he managed to still keep playing cricket during. I think New Zealand, the batting stops weren't quite what they are now. So they had to pick even a partially sighted Taylor was still in their best six batters. And the last innings before he, uh, he went to have that removed, he, um, uh, he scored a quick hundred against Pakistan, which gave New Zealand just enough time to, to force a win. Uh, and then for the two years after, I think he averaged about 80 in test cricket. So he's uh, yeah, a proper great. He's been through loads uh, and done it all with a kind of a, uh, sort of a bit, a bit, a bit of a, a shrug and a, and a smile, I think. Like his, uh, his celebration when he sticks his tongue out is one that I've always quite liked because uh, as trademark ones go, he seems to do it almost reluctantly, I think. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a shame to see him go, but I think this is the right time. He's managed to as, bring that, that crop of batters has been brought through partly because of the stability that he's given the, the side and they are now ready to take over the mantle. Um, but yeah, an absolutely brilliant career from a, from a guy who seems like a, a lovely bloke and who deserves uh, a good send off. Hmm, absolutely. Um, and the other big retirement this week was Mohammed Hafiz is gone to at the age of 41. The only uh, Pakistani batter to or Pakistani player to hit 12,000 international runs and take 250 international wickets. Um, a fine international career. I've, I've always described him, Joe, as one of the great survivors of Pakistan cricket. A lot's happened since he debuted in 2003 and 18 years on, he was still he was still appearing in World Cups. <laughs> yeah, I kind of thought him and Shoaib Malik would maybe go out together. But um, <laughs> Shoaib Malik still, still rattling on? I, I think so. Impressive. Impressive, yeah. I mean, they... Both been written off so many times, probably by me many times. Uh, and I, I interviewed Hafiz quite quite a few years ago, and he, you know he's got the nickname the Professor, which I always take with a kind of pinch of salt. But when I spoke to him, I thought it absolutely stacked up. He was a fascinating bloke to speak to um, on all aspects of the game. Not he was very much interested in kind of the, the world game at large, not just his game or Pakistan. Um, yeah, one of the more kind of it's yeah one of those interviews that kind of stayed with me. Um, I guess his time had probably come at forty-one. I mean, you might have said it came a little bit earlier, but he he did have a kind of resurgence with the bat. Suddenly, started kind of clearing the boundary in a way that I hadn't seen him do for about ten years. Um, so yeah, another wonderful, wonderful career. That um, yeah, I mean, how many years was it? Did you say uh, eighteen years? Eighteen years. David in two thousand three. That's a good innings, isn't it? Yeah, well played. Mm. Absolutely. Um, an excellent test is brewing up at Mount Monganui between New Zealand and Bangladesh at the moment. Despite a Devon Conway first innings 100, Bangladesh bowled New Zealand out for 328 and um, Bangladesh are currently 401 for six in response to 50 from Mamdul Hassan Joy, Najmul Hussain Shanto, Monwal Haq and Lytton 
Das, I guess, Joe, this is what happens if you don't pick Ajaz Patel. Um, it's quite interesting, though, because they, they've got... So Joy and Shoreful Islam, who took three wickets in the in the New Zealand innings, um, both those guys were part of the Bangladesh Under-19 World Cup winning side in 2020. And I, and I guess, Ben, it's quite interesting. Both of us have covered Under-19 World Cups in the past. And you can get excited about players at Under-19 level. But I think it's fair to say that the standard is so far off, even domestic professional cricket, that it's quite hard to, to say if players who excel at that level will make it uh, in the short in the short run in international or even in the long run. So I guess for Bangladesh, it's so encouraging that this early on in that cycle, less than two years after that tournament, two of those guys are, um, are seemingly doing well in, in a test series against one of the best sides in the world. Yeah, I guess when you're trying to judge players in those under-19 World Cups, often it's best because you, especially you get like, it's not just that the overall standard is less, you get some sort of real gimme innings, I guess, because you do get like, remember New Zealand when I was there in 2018 scored 400 and something against a Kenya under 19 I think with three of the top four making quite quick or maybe two make big hundreds and then Finn Allen hit a 40 ball 90 uh, so you, you've got to you, I think you've almost got to like make the calls based on a few sort of crunch moments against bowlers who you can see will quite soon be international class I remember in that tournament uh, Shubman Gill played really good innings against Pakistan and one of their bowlers was Shaheen Sharafridi and he played him really well and that was a uh, that 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 felt like okay. You can now say with reasonable confidence that this guy is pretty good. And I guess that's what some of the Bangladesh players would have done against India. But yeah, it's hugely encouraging for them. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you might have a couple guys who start strong and then fade away. But I think Litton Das is almost the the most encouraging one because he's been really good for for a while now. He's averaging just under fifty, I think, since the start of uh, twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, I think. Um, and it was a, for a long time a player who, like, they maybe would say would throw it away a bit. There was a, a sort of a few minor controversies and stuff. And now it's properly, like, kicked on to become the player that I think Bangladesh coaches and fans always thought he could be. And to have just, they, they've, I think that they're one of those teams that will often have a few stalwarts in the batting order around whom a few guys who might, like, stick around or might fade sort of uh, play. And if they found another one there, then that is... That's absolutely huge. On the test itself, I fancy it will peter out to a reasonably tame draw. Uh, and Bangladesh have batted quite slowly, so they'll need to either really up the gears. And even then, they're giving themselves, what, four and a half sessions to bowl out New Zealand. But with New Zealand possibly able to get a lead at some point, which reduces the time available. And I think that one of the things that New Zealand are pretty good at, and not to bring it all back to England, but one thing that England can really learn from is how to just manage a test match that you're not doing that well into a draw. They did the same thing to England in 2019, if you remember. I think in the game, Roy Burns made the 100 in. And they just like, I think Taylor and Williams have both made 100 in the final day and just completely took the tension out of it. So I fancy that's the way it will go, but I would love to be uh, proved wrong. Yeah, worth saying as well, Bangladesh without Tammy Mikbal or Shakib Alassan. So it's it's not the, the same old names doing it for them. Um, the Site Screen Cricket Journal asks, are there any lessons that England could learn from the way Bangladesh have batted so far against New Zealand? I, I think one of them is just you know, basing their game plan on, on what New Zealand do. New Zealand bat slow and long most of the time in in, uh, in, in home test matches. And that's with the exception of Litton Das. Litton Das added a bit of impetus to that innings, but 
up until then it was really really slow going and I think that that is the way to go against an attack as good as New Zealand in in New Zealand um we're going to finish the show off with an interview Joe did with the Parkinson twins um it's a great listen and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did um but before we get into it Joe it was it was very interesting um Matt was very honest about um what it was like to be in Australia and, and not really get an opportunity to play obviously the weather paid a part there but Parkinson didn't play in that game between England Lions and Australia A when he might have expected to yeah, so the interview was, I caught him just a couple of days after he'd got back. So it was all still quite fresh. And yeah, yeah, I mean, didn't hide his frustration at all. It's obviously not an isolated incident at all where he doesn't get to really have a go. Um, I think he does say at one stage, he, no one was really to blame and that the weather was a, a big cause of it. But there was that, that sort of the centrepiece of the tour for the Lions was their game against Australia A, effectively a kind of a test match in, in inverted commas. And at that point, they brought in Don Best's from the senior group to get some practice uh, and Parkinson dropped out and Bess was the only one to drop into that um, Lions side. So Parkinson obviously felt a bit singled out as the person to drop out and he comes back having bowled, what, four or five overs in competitive cricket um, whilst he's out there, which is which is no kind of tour. Um, and then just after I did the interview, uh, they England announced their T20 squad to tour West Indies and he's not in that either. Um, and I'm sure he'd have been very frustrated um about that but yeah that yeah but i would say aside aside from that they are both in in cracking form both like it's really enjoyable interview speaking to them both at the same time um they kind of bounce off each other uh in a really lovely way as you'd expect and uh yeah it's one of the yeah one of the joys of the festive period chatting to those two they're mm-hmm. really lovely pair. um yeah the, the full version of that interview will, will appear in the next wisdom cricket monthly um but joe before i play it as well Obviously, Matt is a is a great favourite of the pod, um, but Callum had a, had a had a brilliant season with Leicestershire, a real breakthrough season where he was um, yeah one of the leading wicket takers in the country. Watched uh, a lot of his highlights as a bowler. He reminds me a little bit of Leach actually in terms of the action he gets on the ball. He's quite quite um, quite an energetic finger spinner, I guess, in red ball cricket. But yeah, he, he's had a massive year as well. Yeah, I think. I want to get the stat right. I think he's one of only five English spinners to take 50 championship wickets in a season over the last 10 years, um, which, as Matt said, he did get to bowl about 300 overs. Um, <laughs> but still, it was, it was a very good effort. And you say a breakthrough season. It was with the red ball. With the white ball, he's been doing it for a, a while now. He's Leicestershire's all-time leading T20 wicket taker. I think it's not inconceivable that you could get could go with England at some point in white ball cricket. I think red ball cricket, potentially a bit of a stretch. Um but we could still see them playing together for England at some stage. That would certainly be a, a lovely story. Mm, absolutely. Well, here is a section of that interview. So Matt, obviously you're just back from, from Oz not, not so long ago. Uh, obviously the rain ruined that Lions match against the first 11 and then Don Best got the nod as a spinner. The Australia A game, was it at all you were able to take much from personally or a bit, bit of a frustrating trip? Yeah, it was frustrating. Um... I think I went into the tour with sort of the hopes of it being like a match tour and trying to sort of push push my case for the ashes, really. And it just sort of never never got going, really. Um, no one's fault. Like, the weather mm. wasn't great. Um, almost, like, stop-start the whole time. Um, and then we played a little bit of cricket, like the two warm-up games a little bit. Bowled pretty well in this one warm-up game, bowled like five overs and then got told that Bessie would be coming in to play that game so that was frustrating um, obviously to build up for that one game and then not to play you sort of feel like the trip fit, fit was pointless mm. um, 
I think I'd have been more accepting if more Ashes lads would have come in. So like if they'd have brought like three or four lads in, but to be the the only one again not playing was, was frustrating. Yeah, I'm sure. I think a lot of people were surprised that that you guys came home when you did, um, and that maybe a few of you didn't stay out there to support the full squad, especially given that it's obviously not going very well. Um, was there any discussion about that that you might stay out for a bit longer? No, nothing. Um, no. Didn't really. From a quite sort of early on in the trip, you sort of got the feeling that no one would be uh, would be staying out really. Um, it was quite separate the two the two squads. We trained separately. Um, it might have been different if those two warm games hadn't been so so stop star. Um, but yeah, I had no no like chats with anyone about staying out, and I don't think I I probably got the chance to show that I was worth staying out really. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you spoke to a few lads from that trip, they'd say they'd say say the same as well. So um, probably didn't get a chance to show Rooty or Spoons that you've actually improved or that you've done anything because I was confined to the indoor school in Brisbane. I've all five overs in one warm up game and two two overs in the other. So yeah, and then to obviously miss out on selection. But I think even before that last Lions game, we'd all been like no one had been told they were staying. Like Liam Norwell got. Five for Brace got hundred. Yeah, like no one. It was already done by then. Flight, flights were booked. So right, I wanted to go right back to the start. Uh, which of you arrived in this world first? Best sixteen minutes of my life. It was. <laughs> Knew that was coming. Those exact words. And do you think yeah. that um, sixteen minutes of of seniority is is reflected in your your relationship or your or, or the way you act? I don't know. No. No, to be fair, I think I've said this on um, an interview in the past. Um, I think obviously with Matt's Matt's kind of um, exposure to international cricket, and you know, his he's we're very different people, and all identical twins, and but we've got quite different personalities. He's probably a slightly more. I mean, he'd probably say himself. He's a bit more confident, a bit more self-assured, kind of brash. Um, version of me basically so and I think stuff in his life happened kind of earlier than mine in terms of like he, he fled the family home earlier and um, yeah he was probably slightly more intelligent so he's always took on kind of the senior brother aspect despite me being you know 15 minutes older but you know I'd, I'd say I'm probably more sensible and a bit more of a calmer head well, because I was going to say, when it came to that Lancashire age group side who, who sort of destroyed everyone in their path, you were, you were the captain of that side, right? So well, were... I was the captain to start with. Right. And then I got sacked. Did you? <laughs> Bullshit. I think, I think so, so under 17s, when we were actually 17, um, I think they realised that I was fractionally more level-headed and could probably reason and relate to a few more of the lads than Matt, who by his own admission was chest out, you know, he was he was unbelievable as a youngster at that age. Um so he probably couldn't relate with lads that were struggling, I reckon something he'd probably admit himself. So I think probably him getting the sack um was the reason we won the double. <laughs> no, I I disagree. I mean I I probably couldn't understand I probably struggled to understand why some people couldn't do what, what we could do. And I think if I'd have captained that team that Callum captained, it'd have been a lot easier. But I captained the year before 
sort of year young when I was 16. And we weren't, they tried to play a few of the actual year above, didn't they, to start with. Um, they didn't play as many of like that unbelievable age group side that we had. So yeah. I really struggled like captaining these lads that I just thought my mate should be playing here instead. So I'd had a few ding-dongs with the coach because I don't think you started in the team, did you, straight away? And like people like Josh Bohan and Harry did and they didn't start in straight away. And I don't think that did me any favours. Um, sort of having a fight with the, with, the, with the coach and the manager trying to get lads from my age group in. Um, sure. But yeah, I think I'm more of a, 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 a vice-captain sort of person. So what was Matt like to, to captain then in that side, Cam? Um he, he was really good, to be fair. He, I think the thing you don't see with him, even now, is that he's got a really good cricket brain. And he, he looks quite kind of aggressive and, you know, like the world's against him when he's bowling. Um, and even back then, like, he, he'd get down and down in the dumps if he went for a couple of boundaries. But, you know, he'd just chuck in the ball and you knew you had 20 overs locked in. And he, he was, he was you know, he's not going to give me any shit either, you know. He, he knew that I wouldn't stand for any of that, and and yeah, he was he was fine. He would, we'd have the odds spat because we were both so competitive, and and I think like that Cameron said in his interview, we we had such a competitive age group, such a kind of a will to win that we did clash at times, um, especially me and Matt, obviously being twins. Um, but no, he was he was easy to captain. He just knew what, he knew what he was going to do, and. Yeah, it was, it was fine, yeah. I'm hoping I get my kudos for the year before when I bowled you when I shouldn't. Yeah, so I'll run the story for you. So I I changed to spin for the first time properly as a 16-year-old playing under 17s. Okay. And I kind of played because um, I could bat as well. So I kind of batted at like five or six and basically played because I was a talented cricketer. Um, and I was lucky that Matt was captain, so I kind of bowled a lot more overs. Like Matt probably sacrificed himself. There was games where I'd bowl 25 overs and the next bowler bowled 12 overs because kind of Matt knew that I needed that for my development to try and, you know, have the opportunity to impress and kind of put a, kind of a foot forward um, in that respect. So I think, if anything, to be grateful of Matt's brief reign in charge was that you know, the brotherly love came to the fore and he probably shunned a couple of lads' development in order to kind of facilitate kind of my bowling, basically. Okay. And I think that, that goes back to my point about not being able to understand why some people couldn't do what we can do. Sure. Because I just completely racked off like a couple of lads. Like they'd be playing as a bowler and I'd bowl them like three overs out of 90. And they're gone. Yeah. That's End it. Of the day. End of the day, they'd be like, "Why do you and your brother bowl twenty-five each?" <laughs> well, there is a reason for that. That's interesting because I remember Matt when you were um, on the podcast talking about playing against Callum in, in a county game just a year or maybe two years ago, and you saying you you really didn't enjoy the experience at all. That, like, I think some siblings would really relish the opportunity to get one over on each other. I remember seeing the Currens out in the IPL and it looked like the most important game they'd ever played in their lives when they're up against each other. What, explain why you don't like playing against each other. What, what's, what's kind of the, what are the emotions in that situation? Um, I think it's changed a lot now. I think when we first started in professional cricket, it was, you're on, a, you're on a bit like, you were nervous for, you, for Callum because he was making his way in the game. We both were. 
and you didn't want to see him have a bad game because then he might not play the next week. Right. I don't think we're quite as far along as Sam Curran and Tom Curran not giving two shits in the IPL because they're both getting paid thousands of pounds to <laughs> to bowl whatever they bowl. Um, I think we're getting more to the stage now where we're probably a lot more comfortable, especially in T20 cricket, because we don't play each other very often in red ball. Uh, red ball wouldn't be fun, I don't think. Um, whereas T20, obviously Callum's like the all-time Leicester wicket taker now. I know that if he has one bad game against Lanks, it's not going to stuff, stuff his season up. I think he's played like 60-odd, 70-odd T20 games now. So probably more comfortable now with that. I think when we first started, it was more a case of we were both, I think we made our debuts in a week of each other. So for the first couple of years, it was more like, I really, really want to see Callum play and do well. Mm. Whereas now I still want him to do well. Like an ideal game would be, he gets two for 30 or four and, and we win, um, which tends to happen unless they do win. But um, yeah, I think now I'm probably more, more at peace with it than I was. Um, yeah, to start with, it was quite, quite tough. That's all we have time for today. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Ben. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube, do hit the subscribe button. If you're listening to the audio version, feel free to give us a five-star review. Sports Social Podcast Network.